Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, when we sat down to start recording, we were talking about how Section 84, we were planning on doing a shorter episode until we remembered that we were doing Section 84. And so I don't I don't think that's <laughs> humanly possible. possible to be able to do a, a shorter episode for section eighty four. We had one last week. That was that was quite successful. We were we we specifically we don't even intend to, but we we pretty much get it towards like an hour and a half long almost with within a couple minutes almost every single time. But occasionally one goes a little bit over and last week was actually a little bit shorter, so it worked out. But section eighty four, man, we're <laughs> How do you just talk about a few things in this section and, and how do we pick <sighs> it? So we, we've decided to pick maybe four different topics, uh, work our way through, and then just to see where, where we land. But man, this is, this is such a big section. So let's get started. You know, we begin by having God reveal, you know, this is Jesus talking and he starts to reveal the nature of this thing, priesthood and what is priesthood in We've talked, Ben, about priesthood being a mode, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that and, and about how this is, uh, what what that means in this conversation. And then, Ben, you have a lot of stuff to talk about in connecting back to your you and Christopher's conversation in section 76, and, and then Christopher and Riley with the Latter-day Contemplation podcast actually had a Lectio Divina aspect of section 76 that they talked about afterwards. And and so we'll bring that up and talk about that a little bit. But using 84, connecting back to 76 as an ascension text, which I think is absolutely fascinating, especially as we bring that into the the temple. I just wrote a an article for a class that, uh, or I guess a paper. I can never keep my papers and articles and whatever <laughs> things separate. Anyway, I wrote a, a little a little thing <laughs> on on the ascension of the temple and showing that the ascension of the temple is a complete philosophical journey ending with the ceiling of being as the ascetic of God. But yeah, so the first part of section 84 is about that ascension aspect to it. Then we get into the oath and covenant of the priesthood. We get this little transition about the book of Mormon. And this is a very popular point uh, in uh, in section 84 about the saints being under condemnation for not being able to to remember the new covenant of the book of mormon and to being able to use that and utilize that also this really interesting statement about vanity and unbelief and about how that affects our our discipleship and how we utilize that those things that god has given us those modes that god has given us we have a little bit here, and then it transitions really for the last last half of section 84 into a discussion about the apostles going out as missionaries. So we kind of have to understand that for the first 
at least 15 years of church history, apostles didn't function the way that apostles really function today. Back then, apostles were primarily seen not as church leaders as they are today in that kind of hierarchical sense. They were seen as a group of official, officially designated missionaries. And so this is really kind of section 84 is really setting the terms about what the apostolic missionary is supposed to be. And in fact, a little a apostle, not big a apostle. Yeah, li- right? yeah little a apostle. <laughs> and in fact, I remember uh, President, or rather Elder Holland talking about missionaries who were set apart and the authority that and power that is given to modern day missionaries is the closest thing to the of what the the keys of the apostles have you know it's it's very similar so so there's still that kind of vein of thinking in uh in in modern day apostolic um, speak but we get a lot of sermon on the mount conversations with this we have a lot of that that sermon take no thought for the morrow speak we have a lot of conversations about the purity in heart about the poverty of spirit about seeing the face of god and what all that means and that has a lot to go, to go into this ascension text to kind of kick things off, Ben, one of the things that I initially pulled up is here in verse three and four is it says, which city shall be built? Well, you know what? Let me start with verse two. Yea, the word of the Lord concerning his church established in the last days for the restoration of his people, as he has spoken by the mouth of his prophets and for the gathering of his saints to stand upon Mount Zion, which shall be the city of New Jerusalem, which city shall be built beginning at the temple lot, which is appointed by the finger of the Lord in the western boundaries of the state of Missouri, and dedicated by the hand of Joseph Smith Jr. and others with whom the Lord was well pleased. And then verse 4, Verily this is the word of the Lord, that the city, New Jerusalem, shall be built by the gathering of the saints, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. For verily this generation shall not all pass away until a house is built unto the Lord, and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall even be the glory of the Lord, which shall fill the house." All right. So a couple things here. And just in brief, I want to touch on verse four, because this, I know a lot of people have come back to verse four as a means of showing possible or seeming false prophecy. Because here we have the Lord specifically coming down after he's, his own finger has chosen the temple site. And they talk about the new Jerusalem being built in Missouri, in the gathering place there. And that this temple in the New Jerusalem there, in the boundaries of the state of Missouri, will be reared in that generation. So, Ben, I'd be interested in a couple words that you had. One of the initial thoughts that I had here was that there's there's the fulfillment of prophecy and the hope of prophecy in a lot of ways. That a lot of what God says is... In, in these particular verses and these particular scriptures and how a lot of the early revelations came to the saint was in a type of hopeful way. Now, this seems very, very specific. Very specific, right? And, and it seems to be that though that there are certain amount of conditions that we read upon where the Lord says, Hey, if these things happen, then these other things happen. And, we can take these things into a conditional God or a transformational God. We've talked a lot about that before. And so 
how can we possibly take this kind of seeming conditional God who says, hey, if these things happen, this this will be the case, and still have a transformative God? Well, in the first part, it's that we can have a transformational God who still elaborates on reality and shows causation. If, if these things happen over here, these things also happen. And in a, in a lot of ways, I, we see that. I think that conversation comes out with a lot of what the Book of Mormon is talking about. It also comes out in later sections when the Lord starts talking to the saints about why Zion wasn't established in, in their generation. So I'd be interested, Ben, what, what thoughts do you have on verse 4 and about how this verse reads out and, and how we can possibly understand this? The stated purpose of all of this, starting in verse 2, is restoration of the people, gathering of the saints, and then in verse 3, we kind of switch to this building a city, and then the temple, it says the city of New Jerusalem will be built by the gathering of the saints. And this is interesting because there's a couple different ways of taking this. You could say, um, okay, so the saints are going to gather, and then once they're gathered, they're going to then build this physical building, or these buildings that they'll call this city. And But another way to look at it is that the gathering of the saints itself is the building of the city, right? The, the gathering of the saints is what is meant by building the New Jerusalem. And it doesn't mean there's a particular building or buildings that are built. It says, beginning at this place, even the place of the temple, which temple shall be reared in this generation. Now, we've always taken temple to mean a specific building. But when it says, built by the gathering of the saints, you know, a temple is something wherein the spirit of God dwells, right? It's a house of God. The church, as a body of the church, when they gather together, the idea is that the body of the church is where the Spirit of God dwells. The temple is symbolic of that, not the other way around. Okay? So, for instance, when Paul talks about ye are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you, the ye in that, in in the Greek, is actually plural. He's talking about the church. Okay, and so I see this here as we can take it literally and say the temple, but 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 that is a simply a symbolic physical manifestation of what we as a church or as a people or as a gathering of the saints are supposed to be coming, the body of Christ, right, where the spirit of God dwells. And this is very much a calling to that a calling to be that temple as a people. Well, you know, why is it that the social kingdom doesn't have temples? Well, because it is, right? <laughs> they're, they're symbolic of that, of that thing. And so that, that's definitely one way of taking it. The other way to see this is that is the word generation is pretty vague, right? You know, we often take generation to mean, okay, like, the, the people that are born within a specific time period and then their lifespans, that's a generation. And uh, we even started naming generations, right? We've got uh, Generation X and we've got uh, uh, Millennials and, and uh, 
you know, we've got generations, right? We've got all this stuff, the boomers and all this. So we started naming those generations and, and setting time limits on it. This is all about looking at things from the perspective of the Lord. And a generation doesn't necessarily have to mean like a specific people born within a specific time period that then grow up and die within a specific time period. Um, here we're talking, in this context, we're talking about this dispensation, how we have it termed of the gospel, right? And all of the fruits that are born from that. And so we have this restoration of the gospel and this generation. Well, what's this generation? In this context of the body of Christ, it's this gathering. It's this time that the Lord has set his hand to gather his people. And so generation while it may have been conceptualized of the people at the time as a very limited time period where, you know, within 20, 30, 40 years, that, that doesn't have to mean that, right? So there's, there's all kinds of ways that this can be conceptualized, not to water it down, but to simply tell us that this is still relevant to us now, right? This doesn't only mean something to somebody 150 years ago. This can mean something to us right now if we let it. And that's our whole purpose in reading this anyway, right? Right. Now, I, I think you and I both, when we were talking a little bit before, we really wanted to spend the bulk of our time talking about the ascension aspect of this. Because <laughs> sure. that's where like most of the conversation was. And so I, I think if we spend the most of the time there, and then as we progress, we may touch on the last half of section 84, um, if we have time and means and, and, and we get there. But... In verse 5, I love this because it says, I'm going to read it again. For verily this gen this generation, and you just addressed generation could be many things, shall not all pass away until an house shall be built unto the Lord and a cloud shall rest upon it, which cloud shall even be the glory of the Lord, which will fill the house. Now, obviously there it's seemingly specifically talking about a building. And I love what you're talking there about even bringing about the awareness of the self that the temple is a, the temple is a symbol. It's not the destination. It's symbolic of us. And everything that goes on inside of the temple is symbolic of our journey, our own inner discipleship journey. And in fact, it actually follows the beatitude path perfectly as well. And, and not only that, but in the paper I wrote, and it's just a little bit of ascension, and I'll go into it just a, bit, a little bit, is that all four stages of the, of the temple rites and rituals actually follow the philosophical method, moving from metaphysics to epistemology, ethics and politics, and then into aesthetics. Now, the, the discussion there, and I think we've talked about this a little bit before, is that in philosophy, we begin with this discussion of metaphysics, which is a discussion of reality how things really exist. And then when we make a case for how things really exist, then the next question is, well, how do you know that? So the, the second stage then is this epistemology, which is a defense of how we have knowledge, how we have knowledge of reality. So we can make a claim that reality exists in a certain way. That's fine, and we can do that. But then the next stage is we have to validate how we even are able to know that. And then finally, the, the third stage is this ethics politics stage, where, for instance, if we say metaphysically, this is what a human being is, and then the, we answer the question, well, how do you know that? Then and only then are we in a place where we can actually answer, 
what a human being should do. So that's the third stage is ethics. It's, it's how should a human being act? Because you can't know how a human being should act unless you've already made a case for what a human being is, right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. And then once you've made a case for how a human being should act in and of themselves, then and only then are you in a logical place to be able to make a discussion about how a human being should be able to interact with their environment and with other human beings. This is kind of coined by Aristotle as politics. So politics is the ethical discussion on the interrelationship of people and things. And then finally, the final stage of philosophy is this conversation of aesthetics, beauty, the purpose kind of that cap the whole meaning of the entire thing. Well, we talk about this in terms of the temple. It's fascinating because baptism is our metaphysical beginning. It's where the new self is completely reborn and that self is completely changed from what was old into what was new. Baptismal waters are not like spiritual bleach water where we go down the same person and we just come out clean and white. It's actually a, a symbolic of a literal death. Water is chaos, and we descend into chaos and oblivion, and what we come out is organized, new organized life. So there's a, a brand new bringing of a person forward. And then the next stage of the temple in the, in this washing anointing and in the initiatory is a place of instruction where we are told what this new entity is and all the parts of this entity. You know, this is, this is what this part of the body does. And this is what this part of the body does. And this is what this other thing over here does. Because we have to treat that individual coming out of the waters of baptism as a, like a baby and and as I wrote in my article, it's almost as if still covered in afterbirth, then you're washed clean. And from that washing, you're, you are then identified and covered in oil to be able to protect you against the environment. And that's where God clothes you, right? The very symbolic of the Garden of Eden. Then at this point, we have this new identity. And from that stage, then we move into the endowment section of this ascension, where from the endowment... We are then given ethics. How should we live? We are given instruction about how we should live. Those, that's where these main covenants of ethical behavior now exist. When Adam and Eve are characterized and taught how to exist together, and then how Adam and Eve exist in their world, we immediately have a discussion of ethical politics. From that stage, we enter into the celestial room where it's simply a matter of contemplation. So contemplation seems to be the apex of this whole discovery. From that point, from, from the celestial room, is the sealing, the union of, of divine feminine and divine masculine, where they enter the cosmic, the cosmic space of creation. And so creation itself becomes the divine aesthetic, the beauty of God. And in fact, when the Bible begins, it begins with the aesthetic with creation itself. This is what God does because this is what God is. God is what God does because he is a creator. He creates. So this ascension, we see this all the time. We, we see this in the Beatitudes. We see this in the progression of the kingdoms in 76. Now, Ben, talk to us a little bit about here, about what you saw as far as the ascension in 84 and this is also how the priesthood ties into 76. And then, uh, and then afterwards, I'll talk more about uh, kind of the temple and tie that into it. 
So, yeah, up until this point, the discussion of priesthood has been largely a a formality of authority within the church. And this is starting to get expanded. This this definition of priesthood is starting to get expanded and it's being used in more and more contexts. Here there's an introduction to the temple and we're not really sure what this temple is. In fact, in verse 5, it says there's going to be a cloud in it. And we've talked about the cloud as this, you know, this undefined thing, right? It's this ethereal thing that that we don't really know uh, exactly how to to put it in a box and and say what it is. And so that's very interesting in the context of the temple now because they know they're supposed to build this temple, but they don't really know what the purpose of this temple is. Well, then follows this discussion of the priesthood, and you know, kind of looking back on it now, um, the way that it, that temple worship has evolved within our religious tradition has has become very much um, intertwined with this concept of priesthood. And so looking back on that, you can kind of see how that introduction to the priesthood comes by way of the temple, that that's really sort of what priesthood is about at its core is the temple experience, or maybe not even at its core, but the experience in the temple is pointing to another experience and the priesthood is pointing to that experience and we've got all these different things pointing at this experience (laughs) and we call them all different things you know we call them the temple ceremony or we call them priesthood ordinances or sometimes we call them the same thing or we call them beatitudes or we call them plan of salvation like we've got all these different names and we try to kind of fit them all together in this nice schema but but at the end of the day they're actually all different ways of describing the same thing and when we go back to Beatitudes, the Beatitudes is one way that we feel is doing a very good job of describing this process. But I think that right here, the way that Joseph Smith is conceptualizing of priesthood is a way of understanding this same process and just terming it as priesthood. And what follows here after the temple is a discussion of all of this priesthood lineage. Why? Well, it's trying to establish the fact that regardless of how people have experienced God throughout history, it's always been about that experience. And one way to term that experience is priesthood, right? And parents taught their children about how to experience God. One of the ways we term this is priesthood. And so I think that that's that's part of what that the purpose of that lineage is, because then it says here in verse 17, which priesthood continueth in the church of God in all generations and is without beginning of days or end of years. Well, without beginning of days or end of years, that is the term that usually is only applied to God himself. So what is this priesthood that can be so easily termed about who God is? Well, the next verse talks about it. And the Lord confirmed a priesthood also upon Aaron and his seed throughout all their generations, which priesthood also continueth and abideth forever with the priesthood which is after the holiest order of God. This is one of our keys here to understanding section 84 as an ascension text in terms of the priesthood. So it's using the priesthood as a mode for helping us understand ascension. 
DNC 76 talks about it in a little bit different way. It talks about it in terms of kingdoms and eternal progression through those kingdoms and modes and states of being. The Beatitudes talks about it in a little bit different way. And then there's other things that we've gone through in the scriptures. I just see this as a, as, as like one more extended metaphor mode that God is giving us. Hey, if that didn't work for you, try this, right? And, um, you know, I'm going to know a lot of people that are going to read section 84 and be like, okay, that doesn't do it for me. <laughs> and they'll be like, they'll go back and read 76. Ooh, that does it for me. Or they'll read 76 and be like, eh, that doesn't really do it for me. They'll read the Beatitudes. Wow, that really does it for me. And then like in 10 years, maybe, uh, you know, this, this other part, this really does it for me. I simply see this as like God throwing every way possible that he can explain this experience at us. And some of them are going to stick for some people more than others. This time reading through this, I just listened to the follow-up podcast. Not even a follow-up podcast, but but so Christopher and I did DNC 76. And then Christopher went to Riley and was like, hey, we should do a contemplation podcast on this. And then they did that. So I just listened to that and it just had opened my mind up a little bit to the concept that section 84 could be patterned in the same way. And so here, like I said, in verse 18, it says, priesthood, which is after the holiest order of God. What do we mean by the order of God? And Shiloh, you were just, you were just talking about this when in the Ascension text, you know, you arrive up at the pinnacle and the pinnacle is of what God's experience and mode of being is. What is it? Creation. Elsewhere, we have this uh, formulated in a different way in Book of Moses, bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Okay, this I think that's just a different formulation of the same concept, that, that that's sort of that, that pinnacle. Or here we have it, order of God. So what is the priesthood? I've termed it before. It is the power that God has to exalt his children. It's the creative power. It's, it's the way by which he puts us into an experience of understanding who he is and who we truly are as his children and our potential to be like him or the reality of who we truly are as he is and that we merely need to come into that. And I see that as the order of God. And that's the purpose of the priesthood to this conceptualization of it to bring us along that path. And so if we overlay this on section 76 with like telestial and terrestrial and celestial, one way to conceptualize this would be to say something like the priesthood is the way by which we we ascend from kingdom to kingdom. And to break it down even more, we could even possibly say, and and I haven't thought about this more than about the last 24 hours. So <laughs> somebody else needs to probably spend some time with this. I'm going to spend some more time with this. But it's almost like you could conceptualize, we've um, divided up in the church and administrative purposes, the priesthood into Aaronic and Melchizedek. And I'm not going to get into particulars of that because you know it's a long discussion and, and there's a lot of it that, that may not be very meaningful. Only to say that sometimes the way that we conceptualize of the Aaronic priesthood might be as the way the method method might not even be the right way, but the description of how it is that a person comes from a telestial understanding to a terrestrial understanding. So it's like 
it's almost like the Aaronic priesthood is the way, the thing that transitions us between telestial and terrestrial, that part of the ascension. And then the Melchizedek could be conceptualized as that process or that means by which we progress or come into an understanding of a celestial from a terrestrial, right? And so going along with that, that pattern of ascension here, we get to verse 19. And this greater priesthood, this is kind of referring to the Melchizedek priesthood, although it's not as conceptualized in this way. It says Aaron here, um, and then it says holiest order of God. Later, it becomes termed Melchizedek and Aaronic. This greater priesthood administereth the gospel and holdeth the key of the mysteries of the kingdom, even the key of the knowledge of God. Therefore, in the ordinances thereof, the power of godliness is manifest. And without the ordinances thereof and the authority of the priesthood, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. So, verse 22 is the most crucial in this point here, is that part of this path, and this really overlays, this is where we intersect a lot with how the Beatitudes describe it, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so I, I see a lot here without this. Well, if we look at all of the things that brought us up to be pure in heart, these can be conceptualized as ordinances in one sense, right? They're bringing us along a path, a step that points us in a direction of understanding who God is and our relationship with him until we arrive at a point that we're pure in heart and we can see God. We see the face of God, verse 22, even the Father and live. One of the ways that I think this can play out in, in our regular day-to-day experience, not necessarily some like after-death metaphysical destiny, but like our actual lives that we live day-to-day, is seeing the face of God in all of those around us. And by seeing God in our neighbor and in ourselves, it completely affects and changes how we treat others and how we treat ourselves, how we view ourselves and how we view others, literally viewing them. And often this verse here, uh, this last part of the verse, I say, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. At least for a time, that phrase, and live, I conceptualize to mean you can't, if you don't have these ordinances that prepare you, then if you see God, you'll die, right? (laughs) And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what it's saying anymore. it, It doesn't make sense that way to me anymore. If it made sense to me that way before, it doesn't make sense to me that way. What I see this as uh, that makes so much more sense to me now is that that is what it means to live, is being pure in heart and seeing the face of God all around you and in yourself, recognizing who you truly are and who truly, who the people around you truly are, that is life, that is living. And that if you're not doing that on some level, and I don't think it's just an on or off thing, I think that we can do that to varying degrees. That might be a one-to-one sort of correlation with actually what we experience in life. And the more that we see God in others and in ourselves, the more we live. 
Like I said, I haven't thought a lot about that more than just the past 24 hours, so I'm going to spend some more time with it. <laughs> well, I absolutely love that. I love that. No, And when it says, for without this, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live, if we're going to take that at face value, then we have to ask ourselves about Joseph as a 14-year-old boy, right? Who sees mm. not only God the Father, but Jesus Christ, and right. does, in fact, live. <laughs> So yeah, yeah, I I think it has so a ordinances lot. means something different than just like baptism and laying on of hands and you know priest ordination. It's something. This is a term that's much more expansive than that. Absolutely, you know, and we've talked about priesthood as a mode for for quite some time. And just to reiterate, this modality of religious experience is one of these things that we have these. We have these things in our possession. Call it Joseph had a Urim and Thummim. He had a seer stone. He had physical objects. Sometimes we have ideas. Sometimes we have ideas that we say are literally true, like priesthood, that some kind of invisible power or some kind of invisible key that's given to us that unlocks doors. Whatever it is, at least what the point is, is that we direct, these are things that we direct our intentionality through. And we can, we can even say that intentionality is synonymous with faith, with faith being the inner essence, the, the most intimate thing about ourselves, the thing that causes us to act, the thing which really defines at the most core center of ourselves, that part of ourselves that we very, very seldom ever even remotely begin to identify. I mean, how many of us really really get up every morning and self-analyze ourselves by saying, what is my ultimate motivation? What is my ultimate foundational, like core motivation for action, for why I do anything? Right? But that's getting that's finally getting down to the conversation about what our faith is. Faith is that core substance of ourselves that causes us to action. And so when we begin to pour that into whatever it is we're doing. Call it prayer. Call it scripture study. Call it this priesthood thing. Call it temple service, going out into nature. It doesn't matter what it is. Serving our neighbor, going through passing the sacrament, taking the sacrament, going to the temple, whatever. These are moments that we pour our intentionality into these ideas, right? And the, these modes of our, of, of our intentionality. And what I think is really great, Ben, what you brought up here is the ordinances. And this is one of those things, I think we've brought it up before, but to, to, but to reiterate, is this idea that about, I don't know, it's been about two, three years for me, I started to recognize about my own discipleship that I was treating the sacrament as a thing in itself. I was treating the sacrament like it was the thing. Hmm that I was supposed to be participating in. And even though I had spoken about how the sacrament is symbolic, it's symbolic of the body and blood of Christ, right? Well, even that's symbolic. Even that's symbolic, right? Right. <laughs> and so I'm like, ah, what is this? And all of a sudden I started to recognize I was participating, I was actually having a physical experience with a, with, with a symbol but I wasn't having this, the experience of what the symbol represented. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, with, with the sacrament, it's a symbol of a symbol. <laughs> and I'm like, what do I do with that? Mm. 
And it wasn't until I, for me personally, I really came to an awareness of this when I, it was just a random three-day conference I was at. And I walked away from that conference completely, completely different. I was not the same person after that as I was going into it. It completely and fundamentally changed me at a very, very deep level. At that core level that often goes unaddressed, it changed me there. And I remember walking out and having this this inner voice say to me, you have finally experienced what your baptism symbolizes. And that was really the beginning point for me to think, oh, baptism is a death and a coming out of someone new. So at least in part, and I'm not saying that's the totality of what baptism symbolizes, but it is at least in part, and it was for me, those experiences that we have that we know we will never be the same person after that we were before. That those experiences are in no small part what our baptism symbolizes. But the thing is, is we can have hundreds and thousands of different types of experiences like that that will always fundamentally change us. Are all of these experiences what our baptism symbolizes? And that's where I came into this modality conversation, because as we talked about with Section 9, when Oliver Cowdery, he spent, he grew up in a magical worldview where going out and witching and, and, and divining was a thing. But as we've talked about before, God sees the modality of what Oliver is using with these sticks. He's pouring his intentionality into these sticks and it's manifesting something for him as a religious experience that he's deeming a religious experience. And God says, Oliver, keep doing what you're doing, but add this element to what you're doing. Basically, do it with an eye single to my glory. Hmm. Go out there and do what you're doing, but add this thing to it. Add this new element to what you're already doing. And all of a sudden, God transforms his modality. Something that he was doing and pouring his intentionality into, now he suddenly is now doing it with an eye single to God, and it changes his entire perspective. And this is one of the things that I absolutely love about the church's new youth program. Because, Ben, when you and I were growing up, you know, we very much came from the generations where, you know, the scouting programs and the young women programs— is we were brought into a system, a preformed, prefabricated system, and we were brought in to say, this is the modality by which you are going to be trained in as a youth. Here's like the scouting pro. Line. Yeah. Yeah, almost like an assembly line. It's like, right, here's the structure, here's the program, here's the requirements, here are the rules. You're going to go through this, and if you go through this, then at the, on the end of that assembly line, and I like that, that, that that's a good thing. On the end of that assembly line, you will have experienced a certain systematic modality, so you're going to be a certain type of person, or at least have certain kind of uniform experiences. Yeah. And if one thing I learned through teaching seminary, and Ben, tell me if you observed this as well, but one of the, probably the single biggest lesson I learned in teaching seminary about the new generation, because we taught seminary for five years, I think you taught it for for almost as many, I think you taught it for as many years too. Um is that the younger generation that's coming up is not so concerned with systematic beliefs or rigid formulations or structures. They are more concerned with the why question. 
with my seminary students, it didn't really matter what the why was, but if you give the new generation a strong enough why, they'll do anything. They'll sacrifice anything. It's coming from our parents' generation and going back several generations, especially in America, because we had World War II, we had Korea, the Korean War, and we had Vietnam all within 30 years. We ended up with at least three generations that were affected by American culture that became highly regulated and duty-bound. Mm-hmm. And what this largely did is it was, you obey and you don't ask questions. It doesn't matter what the why is. You just go through the program and you do the program and you don't ask questions and you learn what you learn, you're supposed to learn throughout the program, right? And this was a very sociological way upon which the country was, the whole country was exhibiting this kind of behavior and it, Mormonism did not escape it. That's how public school is, is done as well. Sure, right? But this new generation is not so concerned about this whole systematic way of doing things with the right, correct beliefs and the right, correct procedures. What they are very powerful in is if you give them a why, they're converted. They will do anything with a strong enough why. And one of the things I've noticed about the new youth program is that it's not about bringing the youth into the church's program. It's taking the church out into the lives of the youth. So it's emphasizing, hey, what, what things do you do? What modalities excite you? What are you interested in? Do you play sports? Are you interested in, in academics? Are you interested in science and history? Are you, are you, what do you do? Are you a gamer? Do you like to read? Do you like to just to basically sit at home and just be at home in peace and just be in that kind of modality? Does that bring you peace? Whatever it is that it is there, set a goal for yourself and and do something in your life that brings God into your life in the modality upon which you have. And and this is this language is now starting completely changing. Since we we dropped the BSA program and the Young Women program that we've had for generations and generations, this new program is almost exactly like Oliver Cowdery's experience. It's them going, it's people going out and the youth going out and having their own modalities, their own ways of expressing themselves into the world their own, dare I say it, creation, their own divine aesthetic into the world. And God is simply saying through the church, do it. Do that. That is your expression. But remember me while you do it. And I think that's really powerful. Because that infuses that, that divine, the recognition of the divine in our lives in ways that I have not seen before. And I think that's a really powerful way of, of being able to accomplish that. It's a call to a lot more responsibility in one sense, you know, because you, you have to identify that. You can't just say, you, know, you can't just go through the check checklist of the requirements for merit badges or for, you know, medallions or whatever and say, okay, I've accomplished this. Like you have to decide what accomplishment means to you first, rather than taking the definition of accomplishment that's given to you by an institution and a system. And coming back to this concept right here where we're talking about priesthood, you know, that's almost exactly what we see in an ironic or law of Moses type versus law of the gospel versus Melchizedek, or we might talk about the way of Christ. 
sense because he said Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in their wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. But they hardened their hearts and could not endure his presence. Therefore, the Lord in his wrath, for his anger was kindled against them, swore that they should not enter into his rest while in the wilderness, which rests the fullness of his glory. So we can talk about wrath and anger and everything, but the concept really I wanted to get after here was that we're constantly told in the scriptures that their desire was more towards those institutional, systematic ways of behaving so that they could say, okay, I've done A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That means I'm good. You know, I've accomplished something. I've achieved rather than saying, what is it? What is it that really brings me closer to God? And living into that in a subjective way rather than uh, from an imposed institutional way. Again, that's kind of the same principle that we talk about when we talk about the law of Moses versus the higher law. So, yeah, moving ahead into verses 54 and 54 and 55. And Ben, if there's anything in before, jump back, jump back afterwards. Okay. But on 54, and your minds in times have been darkened because of unbelief. And because you have treated lightly the things which you have received, which vanity and unbelief have brought the whole church under condemnation. And this condemnation resteth upon the children of Zion, even all. When I read this, what comes to my mind is that each one of us has the divine spark of pouring our intentionality into our lives, living intentionally. And, and there's a really big movement right now going on in, in the United States. And I've read authors all over the world that's really talking about this new thing called mindfulness and living intentionally. You know, a lot of the times we live unintentionally. And, and this isn't really a, a new concept. What, who was it? Socrates that said the unexamined life is not worth living. I mean, mm-hmm. the, human beings have gone through life. <laughs> all the time for thousands of years, and we don't examine our own lives. We don't take the time to really get into what this experience is, what this unique opportunity is that we have while we are conscious and living. So while we are here, how intentional do we want to be with our existence in the time that we have? And our minds being darkened, I look here as the awareness of our true self. The mind being darkened is the taking over of the false self. We're not really seeing what has always already been. We're not seeing the true self for what it is. We do that because when we don't live with that intentionality, it tends to bring us into a place of what we could call unbelief. Belief itself, you know, even belief in something that's fictional is still powerful. And if anybody has has ever seen a child in Christmas who believes in Santa Claus, I got to be careful saying that because I don't know how many people listen to this. (laughs) I don't know who's listening to this, right? It's powerful. It's powerful. (laughs) To see a child in Christmas... And to see the wonder and magic and awe of what that produces, of what that belief produces, right? 
when we start to form these belief systems and pour our intentionality into them, even if the mode itself carries with it fictional elements. That was really one of the the questions I I took to the Lord per, personally is when I was wondering, can there be such a thing as a fictional mode that produces real life experiences and good experiences? And what came to my mind was that as a 14-year-old, I read Les Mis for the first time. You know, the unabridged version, the classic, you know, gray 1400 page unabridged <laughs> version, right? I was I was that kid. And so the bishop at the very beginning of Les Mis had has had a profound impact on me in my life. In fact, that literary work of fiction has had as powerful influence on my life as some scripture, and I would dare say most of scripture, because of that bishop's example. Now, that bishop's example was based on scripture, so I feel like the circle goes all the way around. <laughs> but I've talked about this bishop in, in times when I've lectured on Zion, or I've gone up in front of groups, and, and we've had groups talking about Zion. This bishop comes up as a conversation piece many times. Now, he's a complete work of fiction. But even using this work of fiction to focus and to channel intentionality of belief and of beauty in creating a moment of thinking about what that bishop represented and why actually creates a moment in a space where in a group setting, people are literally moved. That, that the spirit can come with talking about a work of fiction and then bear testimony of the principles which are true. It's a powerful experience where you were literally using a fictional mode to be able to have testimony of real principles. And so in this way, modalities are, are really interesting things. Because we to, to say that we have 100% pure modalities, I think is a little bit egoistic and, 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 and a little bit hubris, a lot of hubris there. Because <laughs> Because we bring a lot of our own selves into that conversation in making these modes. But that's where I love the grace and mercy of God. Because God comes and he's like, hey, listen, your unbelief and that vanity, that, that thing that you've been doing where you've just been kind of just kind of sitting there, I'm here to be with you. I mean, I'm here to help you see who and what you really are. And then to recognize that the God who truly exists in reality is highly proactive, that his work and glory is me. In that moment when I'm in my vanity and unbelief, when my mind has been darkened because of my own actions, because of my lack of intentionality, my lack of really refining my intentionality to see myself as I truly always already am, You know, so when I sit with those thoughts of that kind of God who is always hyperactive and proactive in my life, that I begin to feel the love of God the most. You know, you talked about things that are fictional being able to to speak to us because of you know in a in a mode sort of way, and I think that the reason that can happen is because we're talking about something. There's something more fundamental there that isn't fictional. 
right? You know, there's something about the character of the bishop that is not fictional. Even though his name and the circumstances and his character are, are put into this story that is told in a way that doesn't rep- purely represent some historical facts, the actual character and way that the the life of the bishop is described, there's something true, truer about that than true. You know, we talked about things that were mythological or like a myth, right? And that there's certain things that become meta true. They're 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 truer than if they were historically true, right? <laughs> and right. so I think that there is a sense in which the story of Les Mis is more true than history. And why is that? Well, because history has all kinds of, you know, history is a perception of a, a particular person about things that actually happened. And and that may be that may be that it actually happened in history or that the person really did perceive it that way. But there are other types of stories, you know, for for instance, Les Mis or these fictional stories that aren't trying to teach us some perspective of history. They're trying to teach us a perspective about what it is to be human. And so they are just as true, if not more true, than some history book because they're getting at that that concept of humanity, these archetypes that are at the core of our humanity. And so there's a lot more, uh, not necessarily more, but, but there's a lot of truth to be found in in that even if it's presented within a fictional framework. And so the same becomes true for religious symbolism, anything that we that we adhere to. You know, when you were talking earlier about like modes and these things that we pour our intentionality to, I remembered the movie Dumbo. And I don't particularly like the movie, but <laughs> there's um there's the part in it, right, where they give Dumbo a magic feather. And with this magic feather, Dumbo is able to fly. Now, here's the question. Would Dumbo have been able to fly without that feather? And that's a hard question to answer, right? Because it's like, well, yes, he could have if he realized that he really could. But would he have realized that he really could without that feather? Apparently not, right? So a lot of these modes that we we get into that help us experience and teach us about God and our relationship with him. We say, you know, we have these verses here that no man can see the face of God without these ordinances. Well, well, how, how is that? How can that be? Well, because those bring us, those help us enter into that experience to understand that even if they themselves aren't the thing, right? It was always inside of Dumbo to be able to do that. But it was the the feather that allowed him to get past himself or the fears that he had and able to actually be who he truly was. And that's what a lot of these these modes are. And, you know, going back to these fictional frameworks that often teach us truth, you know, Moroni says that anything that teaches us to believe in God and Christ and that he is, that's from God. And so, you know, you, you take the story of Les Mis and so much about what that is, how we see the lives lived in that story, the truth that is, it exhibits, it, it invites us to believe in God, 
to believe in mercy, to believe in Christ. And so in that sense, you know, it's it's true. Something you said, Ben, there reminded me of verse 40, about how these modes are what help awaken a sense of what we were already able to do. We've talked about Joseph Smith and, this, and the Yerman Thummim, and then he evolves into the seer stone, and then from there he evolves into simply being his own Yerman Thummim, as it were, in translating the Book of Mormon. And I love verse 40 for that same thing. And this is the part of the actual oath and covenant of the priesthood where it says, Therefore, all those who receive the priesthood receive this oath and covenant of my father, which he cannot break, neither can it be moved. And I have that underlined, which he cannot break. And I've thought a lot about those four words, which he cannot break. And I've wondered, what is their real meaning and purpose in this verse? Is it to... What is it that it tells us about God? Is it that God is a type of a nature that he would break his oath otherwise? But if we have a covenant, then he won't because he's bound. You you can hold God's feet to the fire now. Or is it a way of being able to take people who live in their false self and have a false construct of God who believe that God is that kind of way, and saying, God is never going to do that. He can't do that. Because you have a contract. Because you have a contract, right. And it's funny, this contract idea, and we talked about this before, but this idea of contract or of covenant making is so silly when we posit an all-knowing, all-wonderful, all-loving God. Because this, this I, if I do this, you do what I say, this seeming conditionalism, God is, his work and glory is us. Everything that he's about is our eternal life and salvation. He's not up there thinking, you know what, I'm just not feeling like blessing my kids today. They're on their own. That's just not, that's just not the way this works, right? <laughs> but he, he, this highly proactive God the thing is, is that we living in our false self as a matter of a false epistemology, repent to see God ourselves and the world around us differently. And in doing so, we recognize the actual nature of God. And in, in doing this, though, when as the human species has evolved, we've come into this, this kind of awareness of the world around us that if we do things in a particular way, certain consequences happen. And then we try to repeat those patterns to be able to have good consequences happen. And then traditions start out of that because all of a sudden we kind of forget the reason why we were doing this to begin with to have that kind of end result. And then we just kind of do it because now it was not just that this was the best way to have this result. Now this becomes the only way and tradition takes over and a bunch of other things happen. But in this way, we end up with this kind of, we build for ourselves a construct of conditionalism that God only blesses us if we do it this way, right? What this shows us is just like you said, the modality helps us become aware of what we can always already do. I think in a lot of ways, covenants are supposed to do the same thing. It's supposed to awaken us to a sense of what is always already present with God. That God is not a God that's trying to get out of blessing us. But, you know, just doggone it, he obeyed the commandments today, now i got to bless him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
And so, and it's not that God is up there throwing little spiritual skittles at us either. It's not like where he's potty training his children on earth. That's not how it goes either. We are, we are being brought into this experience. And that's why, you know, Ben, when you said, you know, maybe section 84 doesn't land for you. Maybe section 76 doesn't really land for you, but maybe the Beatitudes. I'm like, well, just at me next time, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I feel. Section 84 has never really been my section. Um, but the Beatitudes and, and that blessedness, that Makarios, that I, I read one book that the author talked about, that this is a unique word that means this is what God would be doing if God were here. Literally in the incarnate genus, Jesus Christ, this is what Jesus was doing, that he was pouring, he was becoming that poor in spirit in his fasting. He was going through the Beatitude journey while fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so this is literally what God is doing. And so we become like God with God through that beatitude journey, just like we become like God with God in the temple journey or in the priesthood journey or in the beatitude journey or in any ascension journey that we are right. going to participate in. And I love what you said there, Ben. These are all talking about the same journey, just from different perspectives. And we are coming, trying to come to a realization of who and what our God is. Because based on our culture and our traditions and our language and our society and our religious traditions and sometimes even the false traditions of our fathers, we see God in a particular way that God has always been trying to get us to see otherwise. Hence repentance. And so covenants, I see, are ways of taking the false self the, the entity that does not trust, the entity that sees a conditional God, the entity which is unbelieving. How do you take that, that type of entity and get them to trust? Well, it may need to start with saying, hey, if you do this, you'll be able to bind God down to be able to do what you need to do. You give him a safe space. Right? You give, yeah, you, yeah, literally, you create a safe space for them to be able to trust in the process. Yeah. What they perceive as them binding God through repentance, they begin to see and become aware that God was always already there present with them, blessing them, helping them, being compassionate upon them, being merciful with them. But in the false self, we don't see that. We just see the conditional quid pro quo God. But sometimes I think we need to have that language in the false self to start us on the journey. Just like we've talked about with loving our enemies. Why didn't God, yeah. why didn't Jesus just say you have no enemies? It would have made us a whole lot easier. But it's through going out and actually experiencing loving our enemies that we learn within ourselves from an experiential standpoint more than an analytical one that we never had any enemies to begin with. And I think in the same way, covenants are doing the same thing. It's leading us through that journey to recognizing what God has always already been. And what we were always already aware of, possibly aware of, and cap- oh, capable is the word I'm looking for, capable of, of, uh, of being. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> There's, you know, as you're talking, I, I, taking all that in and I'm looking over, there, there are just, just like you talked about at the beginning, there's so many things here in 84 that we could, we could just go off on a lot of tangents on. And so like, I, I think I need to apologize to anybody who was like, hey, how come you guys didn't talk about this in 84? This is the best part. You skipped it. <laughs> it's like, 
you know, I, I, I'm sorry, there are some really amazing verses in here, like like verse 45, for the word of the Lord is truth, and whatsoever is truth is light, and whatsoever is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And the spirit giveth light to every man that cometh into the world. And the spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit. And everyone that hearkeneth to the voice of the spirit cometh unto God, even the Father. I mean, that's just, that's just amazing. I don't know what to do with that, but just read it. So uh, going on, though, too, you were talking about how the love your enemies thing is. It's like this, he gives us this hand up, like this way out of that false self. And it's like this, it's kind of an intermediary step. It's like, I see where you are, Jesus, and I really want to get up there, but I if I jump, I feel like I'm going to fall down. And he's like, okay, well, just do this step then, <laughs> you know? And I've seen that. I've talked about it a few times. I see that sort of played out in this ordinance of washing the feet that is described here later in the 90s verses. Again, you know that it's like we go, you know, a missionary goes and and so much of his life he hasn't taken purse script. He's depending upon the mercy of people to help him. He's trying to serve. He's trying to do good. And he comes upon a person who just reviles him and won't help him and kicks him out. And all the all that he's there to do is to serve and bless and show the mercy of God and teach them about the mercy of God. And he's treated this way, right? And there, it's it's... It's like there's that part of you that when that happens, really can't get over the need for justice, right? That person really needs to get their due. And so this ordinance of washing the feet, I see as as this thing that God gives us as a way for us to kind of go and process what just happened, right? It says here, In verse 92, he that receiveth you not, go away from him alone by yourselves and cleanse your feet, even even with pure water, whether in the heat or in cold, and bear testimony of it unto your father. So go and and pray and work this out and return not again unto that man. Don't go back and try to pick a fight with him again. (laughs) And again, I just see this as, as a way of in this process of doing this, you're going to be able to to empty yourself of that that maybe that desire for justice or at least just give it over to god right say i can't i right now i'm having a hard time reaching the level of complete mercy and forgiveness but i i'm able to reach the level of just giving it over to god as he's going to handle this and so i i see that as sort of that that mode that has been given to us of of being able to to do that. Now, having said all that, this doesn't appear to be something that's regularly used in missionary work. And I think that if maybe it were taught in the right way, it could be something that would be very useful in missionary work as a way of of not becoming bitter or um, spiteful towards those that reject. Yeah, you know, on my mission, we talked about people who didn't want to hear the word. Sadly, they were talked about people who were burnt. <laughs> yeah, they, they were going to burn, right? And and the people who really re- who had strung us along, and then who 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 turned around, they were crispy burnt. You know, <laughs> it's like bacon. 
And, you know, I've had to repent a lot since my missionary days about how I perceive people. Sure. You know, I've come across a quote. I don't have it pulled up right now, but uh, Ezra Taft Benson quotes from, uh, I think it's either Orson Hyde or Orson Pratt. I can never keep the two apart when quoting. But <laughs> but saying that the Lord will actually keep a knowledge of the restoration of the gospel from some people because they can do more for the kingdom of God outside of the church than they can from within. That the Gentiles, as they are called, are actually our brothers and sisters in the cause of God, as it were. And, you know, for as absolute truth claims as we have as, uh, as a church, I find a lot of humility in that, uh, being able to mm-hmm. say, even, even withholding these absolutist claims that we do, there's this space where God is doing all sorts of things for his other children. And especially for the older generation, for those uh, turn of the century, turn of the 1900s general authorities who were very secluded, who were still really distrusting of American culture while still trying to court it and show themselves as more American than anyone else. Because after polygamy was was barred and Utah became a state, Mormons tried to really out America, uh, all Americans, right? We, we try to, we try to yeah. be more America than anyone else. And, and so even through that time, the, the general authorities are going through this transition where they are, the humility there, even in the absolutist of, absolutism of their narrative, are able to show grace that God is working his way in everything and with everyone. And if I would have had that kind of humility and perspective as a missionary, I think it would have been a much more effective a missionary. Because at that point, it's not about converting every single person you come in contact with. It's literally just f- coming into the conversation with God. And it's not even really about bringing people into the church. It's about bringing Christ to the people. Right. And that's the whole message of, of the gospel, of the good news of Christ. Because then at that point, let the Holy Ghost work and do what the Holy Ghost is going to do. Because when the focus isn't upon getting people dunked in the waters of baptism, I can't tell you how many people that I've known have gotten baptized and then within, literally within six weeks, will never come back to church, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I, I guess that worked for him, but that 30-second ordinance was, was good, but there was, and so we have all of this other follow-up, right? We want to do institutional follow-up. Make sure they have a friend, sure. make sure they have this, make sure they have that. And it really, it, it just, it, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Well, it's all trying to, to spark that experience, right? But, but it, it's so often, you know, you can't make the horse drink, right? <laughs> right. So, but when we really focus and turn our attentions, not into trying to get people into the waters of baptism, but right. in trying to get people to Christ and then letting the Holy Ghost in Christ do what they do. Right. I've seen, the missionaries that I've seen who do that, when they baptize, those tend to stick. If I can use it that way, is is that a, is that a bad way of saying that? But I think but it's okay. <laughs> the, the, those those that are truly brought into the conversation and, and the relationship with Christ are those that yeah. tend to to stay there because they they really have a deeper conversion. It's like what we've talked about with the anti Nephi Lehi's and with uh, and with the waters of Mormon. They actually had a conversion experience before they had they were baptized or they had the, you right. know they buried their weapons. Whereas the Nephites were always trying to make the covenants before and then live into them. Right. The people who had actually stuck with were those who were converted before and then symbolized their conversion. 
And so it's in that same kind of spirit that the missionaries that go out to really preach conversion to Christ and to bring Christ to the people, and then let the church, you know, and then bring entrance into the church and that whole thing in, into what it needs to be. But changing the focus I've seen has had some pretty powerful consequences. It reminds me of an experience I had as a missionary when I was out knocking doors and this older lady walked by and I don't remember whether she approached me or I approached her and and we started talking and she proceeded to tell to me a vision that she had had of Jesus Christ and that she had seen him and that she knew he lived and she believed in him. And I just sat there and listened. And then she walked away. And I thought, <laughs> I had nothing to say to her. <laughs> I had nothing more to offer that woman. She had had the experience that I was out inviting people to have. And it was a very humbling moment for me in realizing that I, I didn't necessarily have, I, I didn't have everything that everybody needed, right? That, that there were some people that I was going to be able to reach and invite and experience, but God was doing his work even without me. And that I didn't, you know, somebody didn't have to uh, listen to me and get baptized and everything in, in order to, to have an experience with God, you know? Yeah. That brings me to an understand, an idea that I've had and, and I've been working with about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And, and it really comes into, into verse 98 here for me where he says, until all shall know me who remain even from the least into the greatest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, my idea of that has changed because at one point I thought that meant that every knee bow and every tongue confess because they're going to all be made Mormon, right? Or they're all going to be baptized and made a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in this way, it was, my, my thoughts have changed a little bit uh, in perspective and in not saying they won't come into the waters of baptism in, in, in membership in the church and receive that ordinance, but that Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's not his surname, right? It's, it's a title. Right. It's a title, and we've talked about this, especially with the Book of Mormon. When we, were, when we were recording for the Book of Mormon, we talked a lot about taking upon ourselves the name of Christ and what that meant, because the Book of Mormon talks about it a lot. And we take upon ourselves that same name. And in taking upon our, in, in when Jesus takes upon himself that name of Christ, he goes out and he does that which Christ, th- th- that Christ, that title does. That's a manifestation yeah. of who and what he is, and, and that's what we are. And when what I see is that this Christ figure, this that Christ is an archetype of our humanity. That when we truly live in accordance with our humanity, that my Hindu brother and sister, or my Buddhist brother and sister, my Muslim brother, my my Jewish brother and sister, even maybe my agnostic sister or brother, or any spectrum in between, whenever they are intentionally sinking to empty. We naturally go through the beatitude process because we're human, because we are, we are creations of God. 
And we all do it differently. Just like you said, Ben, sometimes it's through this priesthood conversation. Sometimes it's through the beatitude. Sometimes it's through a discussion of, of the glories of heaven. But we're all doing this. And what I see is that at some point, when Christ comes before him, and he shows them himself to them, that they will become aware of what they have always already been doing. Because God has always already been involved in their lives. And it's simply at that point when he says, this thing upon which you do, and which you have always done, do it in remembrance of me. Just like with Oliver Cowdery in the modality, they've always already been pouring their intentionality into God. And then finally, when God comes and gives them a name for it, that's how I see every knee bows and tongues confess, because God finally comes and gives them awareness of what they are always already doing. And that the darkness that they labor under is that they're doing this thing, but they have not been given pure awareness of what it is they're doing. And then God comes and elaborates and shines light upon it and says, this is who I am and this is who you are. This is what you're doing and this is the name of that. And it's in that way that then everyone is found with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Because they see the reflection of what they're doing with who and what Jesus Christ is. Actually, that, that's a perfect explanation of that verse, I think, because it goes on to say, and shall be filled, and shall be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and shall see eye to eye, and shall lift up their voice, and with the voice together sing this new song, saying, and then it goes into to what uh, they're glorifying the Lord for. You know, it reminds me of, of a, a verse back in section 76. It says, Uh, Verse 94, they who dwell in his presence are the church of the firstborn, and they see as they are seen, and know as they are known, having received of his fullness and of his grace. You know, this see as they are seen, they see others as God sees them. And this seeing eye to eye, you know, seeing others as loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Seeing others as God sees us. And I, and I think that that really is another formulation of what it means to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, seeing others as children of God. Yeah, I love that. Well, Ben, we have uh, the last page and a half. Is there anything else that's, uh, that stood out to you that, uh, that you wanted to talk about? Before? I mean, uh, granted, it's section 84, but is there, <laughs> is there anything that has been pressing that you've thought about? There's a there's a bunch of things. I This song... Um, is actually pretty neat. <laughs> neat. Um, I like these two phrases here. The Lord hath brought down Zion from above. The Lord hath brought up Zion from beneath. And there's so much, I think, to talk about in those. But I'm just thinking about the abasing of the exalted and the exalting of the abased. And, and we talk about the exalting of the poor and the abasing of the rich. And it's almost like that that's how you unite Zion is is bringing down Zion from above. Now I know, like metaphysically, this is supposed to be talking about you know the the Zion of Enoch returning from heaven, and then the Zion that we built on earth coming together. But but this is the marriage of heaven and earth, right? This is 
this is when the, you know, the earth becomes renewed. And there's so much symbolism that's involved in this, but but we could look at it um, in our own lives in terms of how we unite ourselves and become something that is that is whole and and uh, not divided into false self and our true self, but this Zion that is this comes together. The other verse that I really liked here was one twelve is talking to Neil K. Whitney. It says the Bishop Neil K. Whitney also should travel roundabout and among all the churches, searching after the poor to administer to their wants by humbling the rich and the proud. And that's that's quite a calling for a bishop. I've known some bishops that have done that. We have in the church institutionalized this in one sense. In certain areas, I don't know exactly how it's apportioned, but we have what we call the transient bishop. Um, is that still a thing? You know, I don't know if it's still a thing. It was still a thing up until about seven years ago, but I haven't heard that term for a while. But yeah, when As I lived in Utah, a couple it was a of years ago, it was still a thing, but I'm not sure if it's still termed that way. In any case, like in any given area, there's a bishop that's like assigned to do this, right? Like they're supposed to go find the poor and, or they're the one that's responsible for when a situation with somebody that's seriously in need to help them and, and deal with that. But I, I just like this, that you're searching after the poor, right? You're not just like, okay, if someone comes to me and, and asks, I'll help. But like, this is actually, no, you need to go find them and help them. And the way that you do that is by humbling the rich and the proud. You go and you persuade and encourage all those who have means to give and to help. That's quite a calling for a bishop, I think. Yeah, verse uh, 119 is the very last verse that stood out to me. For I, the Lord, have put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. Ye cannot see it now, yet a little while, and ye shall see it. And know that I am, and that I will come and reign with my people. I love that it, he's coming to reign with his people. It's yeah, not, I was it's, just noticing that. <laughs> it's not over, it's not under, it's not... It's not to rule, right? It's he's coming to be with his people. It's it's a with. This is really powerful, and there's a a new movement of talking about power in terms of power over or power with. And that power with people is transformative. Power over is conditional. Hmm. And so I find this is really interesting to have the Lord coming. He is already there. I've already put forth my hand to exert the powers of heaven. You can't see it, but I'm there. I mean, that's everything we've been talking about. And just wait a little while, and then you'll see it. You'll see that I'm there. And how often in our lives do we experience these things where we have promises that God's power and that his hand is in our lives, that his love, you know, in my life, in, in the darkest aspects of my life. We cry out because that those are the moments when we don't feel God's love. And how unjust does that feel? That in the moments when we feel we need it the most, we feel it the least. And... And yet I've had just a few glimpses in my life 
to give me recognition that God is there even in my pain. And, I, and I've got to be careful with how I say this because when, when, if I were to have someone in trauma and, and they're experiencing trauma and stress say what, I, what I'm saying, it, it goes sideways really fast. Yeah. Because it seems to validate God's validation of their trauma, that, that God's either causing it or God's apathetic to it, or that God's too weak to prevent it, or that God doesn't care, right? And it's none of those things. But yet, we still experience these things. And still, the universe is good, and we are always already loved. So I love this, that you cannot see it, but there will be a time when you do see it, and you will know that I will come and I will be with you. I think it's a beautiful way to, to close that section. I think that with really does sort of bear up this concept of the priesthood that's trying to be, be sort of articulated in this section. And as we often term it, you know, this, this is the power that God is, is sharing with us, or he's, he's, we, we often say delegating to us, right? That, that he's trying to bring us into that same experience and life that he lives. And it, it's termed in all these different ways. And one way to term it and conceptualize it is with this concept of, of priesthood. And that's that with, right? He doesn't, he doesn't give us that so that he can then put us into a hierarchy that he rules over us with. He gives us that to to bring us into the experience and life that he lives and that he is. And so that's how we should see it as well. And if we don't see it in that way, then I don't think we're seeing it in the way that God has intended for us to have it. If we see priesthood in a different way, then we're not seeing it of God. Yeah, it is definitely not a power over, it is a power with. And I think section 121, I mean, I really can't wait till we get into section 121. Mm. But when in section 121, when it talks about how no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by the priesthood except for by persuasion and gentleness and meekness and kindness, brotherly love, compassion, and all of these things that, that there's no compulsion, there's no coercion, right? There's no unrighteous dominion. And so we'll even have to start talking about what dominion even means and mm. how, and how there's dominion, unrighteous dominion based on like this with 119, that this is a power with us, not a power, yeah. not a power over. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else, Ben? I don't. All right. Well, thank you everybody for, for listening and for, and for being here with us. Thank you for sharing the podcast. I know I've received a lot of messages from you about friends and family that you've shared these with and that, uh, that you've t had conversations about. Um, keep doing that. And thank you for all of your support. Again, thank you to Kyle and Catherine for, for all of your editing prowess and for keeping us going. It, uh, it helps us more than you'll ever know. In fact, we, again, I've said it a hundred times, but we couldn't do this without you. And, uh, and thank you to everybody who, uh, who listens and subscribes and is giving us good ratings and, and kind of helps us move this thing forward. <laughs> but until next time, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. See you next week.